let's pray and then we'll, we'll get into the message. Father God, good to be here, Father, to gather with your people and uh, to gather in your presence. Thank you, Father, for the gift of worship and the gift of Sabbath and the rest that it brings. And now, Father, may you move in a very profound way. May your spirit just um, impact us very deeply as we hear your word. May we hear your voice um, and may you move in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's almost 25 years ago that I started pastoral ministry. Um, and my first church I was, I was uh, placed in uh, and assigned to and called to was Arlington Seventh-day Adventist Church in Arlington, Texas. And um, I had finished at Southwestern Adventist University, um, which, um, so I'd spent some, I'd already been in Texas and then they get picked up and to be able to serve there. Now, what was really cool about that is that I was a huge fan of all the three major professional sports teams teams in Dallas. Um, and of course, you, if you have been around me at all, you know, I'm a huge Dallas Cowboys fan. Amen. God bless his team. So, um, so, so it, for me to start ministry, to be like right there in Dallas and uh, had the, the, you know, you had the uh, uh, Dallas Mavericks and you had the Rangers. So all my teams were there. I even like, you know, the hockey team, the Dallas Stars. It was, it was pretty awesome. And the cool thing about being at the Arlington Church, there were members who had season tickets uh, to pretty much all of the major sports teams, all right? And so I made sure I did a lot of ministry with those people. I mean, my ministry is very focused on them, and they had their own pastor. But, um, so, but every now and then, the cool thing would be they say, they call me up and say, hey, we got some tickets. We're, we're not using them. And, and if you want to use them, come get them, and you can go to game. And I'd be, absolutely, pastors don't, I mean, we don't do anything except for Sabbaths anyway, right? So, no. <laughs> so, so, so I was like, yeah, I'll take those tickets. I'll take those tickets. So I would go, and uh, sometimes they would be kind of farther up tickets. They'd be kind of nosebleed, which was what I was used to, which is, you know, what I paid. If I was going to pay for the ticket, that's where I would go. Um, but then every now and then there would be these tickets that we would get and um, they would be really, really close. Like, you know, I had, I got tickets one time down on about the, the 40 yard line, about eight rows back for a Dallas Cowboys game, which was amazing. And then I had uh, for a Mavericks game one time, it wasn't quite courtside, but it was, it was really close and uh, it was just awesome. And what I realized, man, when you get down close to the court or to the field or to where the action is, things take on a whole different perspective, right? It's like you can, you can like see things and hear things and experience the game in a way that you, you hadn't, that you can't from way up there in the cheap seats. And what you realize real quickly is that these, these athletes, these professional athletes are huge. They're big people and they move really fast. Um, and they're just, there's a, there's just a bigger uh, perspective and a greater appreciation that you have when you're a little bit closer, right? Um, the other thing about, you know, being down really close is you kind of get spoiled. You're like, hey, this is nice. Makes it really hard to go back to the cheap seats, right? If you think about, if you think about scripture, if you think about God and who he is, it's easy sometimes to sort of remain up in the cheap seats away and detached from God. It's almost like you're, you, you allow God to be, to, to be explained to you from, from a distance or you, you allow God to you know, just sort of be down there. 
but it's really when you move up close to God, it's really when you take a courtside seat that you begin to see and have a little bit different perspective on God and what he's doing. You begin to see how big God is. You begin to understand that, that when the Bible says that he can't, we can't even begin to comprehend it, who he is and his goodness towards us, that you begin to kind of step back and go, whoa, God is big and he's broad and he's deep. There's depth to God and there's a vastness to the reality of who God is. And in some ways, you know, some ways it's, it would be easier to stay in the cheap seats, but I think we're challenged by God and, the, and Scripture to move in close to move in close and to begin to see, to begin to get a different perspective on God. And by the way, by the way, the pew is still the cheap seats. <laughs> the pews are still the cheap seats, right? Because really the expensive seats, the courtside seats, the, the seats that are really up close are your seats. It's the seat at your dining room table. It's the, it's the, the, little, the little place in your closet where you get alone with God. And you begin to connect with him. Those are the expensive seats. And that's the, but that's where you see God. You begin to recognize how big he is and how vast he is and how awesome he is. You begin to be drawn into the story that he's telling. You begin to understand perhaps a little bit more about what part in that story he wants you to play. But as you move in closer, you begin to see God in different ways. So in order to sort of, um, in order to help kind of grasp that for me as I sit courtside with God, I've come up with kind of what I call three approaches to God or three, maybe you would even call them filters. It's the way perhaps I, I filter scripture and stories from the Bible through. And um, one, there's three of them. I'm going to share them with you real quick. And maybe this will be helpful to you as you get closer to God, as you move in close, to be able to understand who God is and what he would ask of you. And the first one, the first filter I use, or the first approach I take with God in the Bible and moving close is this. God is for us. Say that with me. God is for us. I believe that. I believe to, to a great degree that that is the heart of the gospel, that God is for us. He's not against us. God is on our side. He wants the best for us. He's not the God that's out there just looking and watching and waiting for us to mess up so he can jump in and do terrible things to us. But he is, in fact, on our side. He was on our side on the cross. He was on our side as he walked on this earth. He's always been for us. God is for us. So when I move up close to God and I'm somewhat overwhelmed by the bigness of God, by the bigness of his word, I remember and I tell myself, this God is for me. This God is on my side. The second kind of filter I apply, the second approach that I take to the Bible is this, that God is revealing truth or truths about his character and his kingdom, right? That's what I believe. God, at some level, is revealing truth about his, the reality of his character and his kingdom. His character, who he is. He reveals himself. He's not a God that's closed off. He's a God that's open, wide open. Come, know me, know who I am. And so as I approach God and as, as, as I read his word, as I, experience it, as I experience him, I know that he is revealing himself to me so that I can know him, his character. 
but then his kingdom. And the kingdom is where he reigns. The kingdom is his domain. It's where he rules. And so God is also revealing to me something about his kingdom and where he rules. And I want to be where he rules. I want to be a part of that kingdom. So I want to know what goes on. What are the expectations of his kingdom? That's the second filter that I apply. That God, as I move closer to him in his bigness, he's going to reveal his character and his kingdom to me so I can know him. Third thing is this. There is a part that he wants for me to play. There's some, there's some way that God wants me to, part, to be a part of the story that he's telling. There's, it's not just I, that I understand that he's for me. It's not just that, that he continues to reveal stuff to me so I know a whole bunch of stuff about him and know him. But that, in fact, God then invites me into the most compelling story on the planet to be a part of what he's doing. That's the third filter that I apply to any, as I read the Bible and as I look and move closer to God. So I hope that that helps you. I hope that at some level it may help you as you, as you leave the nosebleed seats and you move closer to this God who's big, you get to know who he is. So we're going to apply that filter. We're going we're to overlay those three ideas to a story that comes to us from the book of Luke. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. It's a story that we're all familiar with. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. So what's going on in the story of the Good Samaritan? Well, Jesus, in the course of his ministry, um, as he is going about, he encounters um, what the Bible says is an expert in the law. So we're going to call him a lawyer, right? So Jesus comes across this lawyer. The lawyer has the big question for Jesus. The lawyer has this, this most vital question um, for Jesus that he asks him. And basically, the lawyer gets Jesus' attention and says, hey, um, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? That's a big question. That's a huge question. This is, this is moving in close, right, and saying, hey, God, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus hears the question and responds. And he understands that this person is a, an expert in the law, so he says, what is written in the law? Jesus' response to him is what, with the question, right? What is written in the law? How do you read it? What is written in the law? How do you read it? So the lawyer responds, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So he quotes back the law. He said, he's an expert in the law. He should know this. That's kind of a softball question, right? In some ways, it's kind of softball. He said, love the Lord your God. This is what the law requires. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus affirms. He said, yes, you have spoken right. Do that and you will live. Do that and you will live. What stands out to me Hold on, just you know, pause that for just a second. But what stands out to me is something that is so, um, so awesome about God and who he is. He entertains a question from this attorney. He actually takes the time to have this dialogue with this 
with this expert in the law. And it's, I mean, if, if you look at the context, to a certain extent, you get the idea that the, the, there's not a whole lot of sincerity on the heart of the lawyer. It's almost like he's trying to catch Jesus in life, that he's trying to undermine Jesus in some way. And even in the spirit, even if the spirit and the, the heart of the guy is wrong, Jesus continues to entertain the question. That speaks to me, and I think it should speak to the generation and the culture in which we live today. If you were to, if you were to talk about the number one alarm in most churches today, the alarm that's going off is the alarm that says, where are our young people? Where are our young adults? Everyone is, is, is terribly afraid of where the young adults are. Why aren't the young people remaining in the church? And a big part of why this generation chooses to detach from the church, especially as they get further along in life, a big reason is that the church has in general been an environment where you could not ask questions. The church was not friendly to those who threw out questions that, 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 um, that spoke to the reality of their own personal doubt. In other words, you, if you're in, you're in. You believe it, we said it, that's enough, move on. Don't ask any questions. And yet that's not the reality of this generation or the culture in which we live. It's no longer that you can just say, hey, this is the truth, believe it and move on. The culture asks a lot of questions and a lot of difficult questions, a lot of hard questions. And oftentimes the environment in the church is that we don't have any answers, so we're just going to ignore your questions or not create an environment where you can ask them. And what I appreciate about what Jesus does here is that he goes ahead and he entertains these questions. Perhaps that is something that we as a community begin to embrace more of. Every church begins to embrace more of this idea that Perhaps they're difficult. And this is the question, right? I mean, this is the question of questions. And, and maybe there, there's a younger generation out there going, how do we, how do we get into the kingdom? How do we make it to heaven? How am I saved? Do you want to, do you know my reputation? How, is there a God who can save someone like me? Huge question. And Jesus entertains the question. But then there's another question, though. There's a second question that comes about, and it's really, um, it's kind of, it, it allows us to get into the heart of the dialogue. It's the second part. I love the first dialogue. I love the fact that Jesus allows for the question, which, by the way, when Jesus allows for the question, what he's saying is that, that, that the kingdom of God can handle the scrutiny of your question, which is true, which we should all take note of that. Our faith... Our church, our community of faith should be able to withstand the scrutiny of any question that comes our way. We should be able to entertain all the questions. If we don't, if we're not, the, I know we're Adventists, we like to be the answer people, proof text everything to death, right? So, but at the very least, we should be willing to engage and have dialogue with those who have questions, even the ones that we cannot answer. So, the lawyer comes back with another question. He says this. He wanted to know who then is his neighbor, right? 
He quoted back to Jesus the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But he wanted to probe deeper. He wanted to go deeper with God. He wanted to go deeper with Jesus. And so he asked the question, who then is my neighbor? And Jesus then breaks into this wonderful response. He, he breaks into this parable and he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. So let's read it. It goes like this. Um, it's Luke chapter 10, verses 30 through 37. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. This is, the, this is the response that Jesus gives to the question of who, the, who is your neighbor. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So, likewise, a Levite. So, you have two members of the clergy that are coming along this path, and they see the man who has beaten up, been beaten up and robbed and left half dead. And so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the, uh, on the other side too. So two members of the clergy move by this person who was in trouble. But verse 33 says this, but a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, verse 34, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Verse 36, so Jesus comes back with another question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer comes back with a great answer. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So if you take my filters and you take the first one, God is for us. Where do I see God is for us? If I move closer into God and what he's doing, especially what he's doing in this parable, where do I see God is for us? I see Jesus as the original good Samaritan. <laughs> I see Jesus as the one who responds to the broken, the wounded, the hurt, the ones, the, the ones who are in crisis. Because notice what it says about the Samaritan. It says that he went to him. Speaking of the man who was in trouble, the Samaritan went to him. He, he went to where the man was, and then he begins to uh, bind up his wounds. He began to bind up his wounds. He began to do a work of healing. Now, you got to understand, at least for me, I understand that, that, that there are wounds that happen in life, that there's brokenness and pain. There's a reality of pain in your life and in mine. And I love the idea that Jesus is the one that comes along to heal wounds. He's the one that comes to bind up brokenness. He draws near. He doesn't turn away. He doesn't walk on the other side. But where he sees brokenness, where he sees pain, where he sees crises, where he sees vulnerability, God came near. The Samaritan came near. Jesus comes near. It's so easy to turn away from pain, right? It's so easy to move away from the ugly of life. 
But Jesus was drawn to it. And he doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't do an interview trying to get newsworthy information about the person in crisis. <laughs> that happens too, right? You, ever, you have people in your life that, that say, yes, I'll be there for you and I will help you. But then you get, like an inter- you get all this interview information and then you find out once you tell them all the information that everybody now knows all your information about your pain. And so, so Jesus moves in close And he simply begins to serve. Jesus moves in close and he simply begins to do a work of healing. He begins to apply oil and wine. He begins to to help the person recover and get better. Jesus, I think he's, he's for us. So when you go through stuff, when the crisis hits your life, when, when there's pain, when there's woundedness, when there's brokenness, you got to understand that God isn't turned off by that stuff. Whether you brought it on yourself or not, or whether it was brought upon you, God isn't turned away by the ugliness and the junk and the woundedness and the brokenness in your life. In fact, he draws near and there's no questionnaire. He's just there. And he begins a work of healing He begins to apply the oil and the wine. He begins to restore you. What else does Jesus do? Well, he gave him some transportation because he put him on his animal. He brought him to an inn and he took care of him. And the next day he, well, here's the thing. Jesus gives the man a ride. He takes care of things. He covers the bill, right? When things got out of hand in your life, when things get out, of, get out of hand in my life, God's goodness is given to you. All that he has becomes yours. All that he has becomes yours. His resources become ours. And then he says, whatever debt you've created, I'll cover that too. <laughs> That's... The God that is for us. If you move in closer and God seems to be too much and too overwhelming, remember that he is on your side. He is for you. He is for us. God is for me. That's what I see. What's the next thing? Where do I see God revealing the truth or truths about the reality of the character and reality of his character and his kingdom? Right, the first one is where God is for us, but the second piece is where do I see God revealing to us the character, his character and the character of his kingdom, right? So it says there that, um, that the Samaritan stopped. It says in verse 33, it says, a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where the, the, where the man was and when he saw him, he had compassion. There's another translation that says that he was moved with compassion. There's a, in the original language, there's a Greek word that is called splagnon, splagnon, kind of a, you can't forget that word, it's kind of a unique word. And basically it means to be moved at a very gut deep level. And so as the Samaritan, or as Jesus comes along, right, as he comes along our lives, whatever situation we may find ourselves in, God is uh, and, and the nature of his character and the nature of his kingdom is to be compassionate, to be moved very deeply with compassion towards you and me. That's really powerful news about who God is and about how his kingdom is. 
that where he sees a mess, where he sees where life has become too much and is way too overwhelming for some of us, where he sees crisis, God is moved with compassion. He's not turned off by it, but he's compelled. It's the, it's, and the way the, the Greek word, again, if you go back to Splagnon, is that you're so deeply moved that you are compelled to step in. You're compelled to, to get involved, to act. And that's the, and, and in fact, it's really cool. You see the, the primary word that's used to describe Jesus throughout the Gospels is that word compassion, splagnon. That Jesus throughout the Gospels, he is always, always compelled at a very deep level to move with compassion towards the broken and the hurting. So what is God teaching about his character and his kingdom? His character is that he's a God of compassion. And his kingdom, a high value of his kingdom is compassion. So if I want to reflect the character of God in my life, and if I want to be a part of the kingdom of God in this world right now, if I want to be the kingdom of God, then what should come from me is a deep heart of compassion. That where I see brokenness, woundedness, and pain, I pray that the spirit of God would move deep within me and that I would be compelled to move towards the crisis and the pain to make a difference. And that's what Jesus would do. There's a second word, and you see, you see it towards the end of the dialogue. There's a second word that comes out, and that is um, um, when, when Jesus, after the story, um, it comes down and, and uh, Jesus says that um, he, he, there's that, the going back and forth and Jesus asked him, so who was the neighbor, right? Who was the neighbor in the story? And the lawyer says it was the man who showed mercy, right? It was the, the Samaritan who showed mercy. And Jesus says, go and do that. And it's that word mercy in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, it's hesed. But it's a, it's a powerful word um, in that it speaks to the idea of loving kindness, so, so who is God? He's a God of compassion, compassion at such a deep level that it compels him to engage in the worst of things that are going on in our lives. But he's also a God of mercy who in those crisis moments, in those most difficult moments, he's a God who shows up and demonstrates loving kindness. Ah, I love that. I love the idea of mercy that is loving kindness because there's plenty of meanness in the world, y'all. There's a lot of meanness and foolishness. But God says that his character and his kingdom is mercy, it's loving, it's hesed, it's, it's loving kindness even to the most ugliest of situations. Even to the situations that, where people don't even deserve mercy. God says, I'm a God of mercy. What is, his king, what is his character like? What is his kingdom about? It's about, it's about compassion. It's about mercy in the, most, in the most difficult situations. Whether it's something that's been done to you or something, some kind of foolishness you've gotten yourself into. Finally, finally, what the third filter that we apply is what part does God want me to play in it? He keeps telling the, the young lawyer, go and do it. Go and do it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor. Go and do it. Go do mercy, he says. 
Check out this quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. This is pretty awesome. I imagine that the first question the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But by the very nature of his concern, the Good Samaritan reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? The Good Samaritan engaged in a dangerous altruism. (laughs) I love that. So God says that the part that you and I play in the story that he is telling, that he is telling, is that when it comes to the vulnerable people in the world, the vulnerable people in our own lives, that we are to practice a dangerous altruism. That we should not be repelled by, by our own fear. That we shouldn't be repelled by the, by, the, by the potential involvement that we might get into. Because once you start engaging in the lives of broken people and in the crisis moments that come with all of life, you will get into some stuff. He says it's dangerous altruism. His, his part that we, the part that we play in the story that he's telling is to just trust him and to be courageous enough to go even where we're afraid to go, to connect with the most vulnerable people in the world, the broken, the hurting people. Because the reality is, I mean, that's us. That's all of us. We've all experienced pain. We've all experienced brokenness. It is, it's, it's the loving kindness. It's the mercy of God that has been so good to us. We've experienced that mercy. He says, be my agents of mercy in the world. So there's this, um, there's this concept in sports called the mercy rule. Y'all heard of that mercy rule? If you played sports, maybe you played on a team that wasn't so great and y'all got mercy ruled. Y'all heard of that? So basically the mercy rule is this. Um, it, it's if there's a team that isn't, that's, that's defeating another team so badly that the game just needs to stop early, right? It's, it's just that bad. Like the score is just getting out of control. So the referees say, okay, this game is going to be over when this other very dominant team reaches this, this number of points. So then we're just going to call it and the losers will be the losers and, but the, and the winners will be the winners. But the game's good because we cannot handle any more of this beat down, right? That's kind of how the mercy rule goes. And, and, and we've all been either the team that was doing the beat down or the team that's been beat down. But you can appreciate the mercy rule rule. But in sports and in the economy of this earth, when you get mercy ruled, you're still a loser. Even though the beating stops, you still lose. That's an L in the L column. You, got, you lost. Here's the cool thing about God, because he's a God of loving kindness. He's a God of mercy. God still, God mercy ruled you and me. He understood that you and I couldn't handle the junk that goes on. He understands that we can't handle the stuff that goes on in our lives, that we get beat down by stuff, that we find ourselves in crises, crises that come at us from the outside and crises we create ourselves. And he sees that. He says, oh, I got to let the beating stop. You can't handle this, so I'm going to mercy rule you. That's what he did. Came on the cross. He says, that was all mercy. He has a relationship with you and me. That's all his mercy. But here's the cool part about Jesus. the the kingdom of heaven. When you get mercy ruled, you win. We win. In God's economy, his kingdom is different. He values mercy. You win. There's no L. It's a big W. 
You don't deserve it. There's no way you could earn it. But God says, my loving kindness is for you. And all he says, whatever crisis you come upon, whatever vulnerable people you encounter, show them that same mercy. Show them that same loving kindness. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time that we've had this morning. Thank you for the power of your loving kindness and your mercy and your grace. May we go out and live it in Jesus' name. Amen.